Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, one of the privileges of being a part of the Beeson Divinity School community is welcoming uh, fantastic scholars from all over the world, world-renowned theologians and scholars who visit us to give lectures. One of those was the late James B. Torrance. He passed away in 2003, and just a few years before that, he came to Beeson Divinity School to deliver a series of lectures during the Reformation Heritage Lectures. This was in 1998. And we're going to hear a lecture he presented in Hodges Chapel on prayer and the priesthood of Christ. I'll never forget uh, this lecture and meeting and being with uh, Professor James Torrance just a few years before he died. Let's go to Hodges Chapel now. The year is 1998. The speaker is James B. Torrance, Prayer and the Priesthood of Christ. Well, once again, may I say what a joy and a privilege it is for me to come to be with you and not least to speak on this subject of prayer and the triune love of God that our whole understanding of prayer and communion flows from our understanding of God as love, the triune God of love. And today, I'm going to say something about prayer and the priesthood of Christ. And let me begin by the story that I began with yesterday. You remember I told you how D.L. Moody once came to Scotland and addressed a crowd of some eight or nine hundred school children and said to them, what is prayer? <coughs> and to his astonishment, They all seem to know the same answer, the classical statement of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that prayer is an offering of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. We can only pray in the name of Christ, because Christ has already, in our name, offered up our desires to God, and continues to offer them. And in our name, he lived a life agreeable to the will of God. In our name, he vicariously confessed our sins and submitted for us to the verdict of guilty on the cross, taking the condemnation of our sins to himself. The great Pauline words, the catechrema, the catara, the orge, the judgment, the condemnation, the curse. And in our name, gives thanks to God. We pray in the name of Christ because of what Christ has already done for us and is doing for us today uh, in our name, on our behalf. Now, this finds vivid expression of what the New Testament has to say about the priesthood of Christ in in his ministry of prayer and intercession. As in the Last Supper speech and in John 17, our Lord's high priestly prayer, and also, very especially, in the Epistle of the Hebrews, which uses the liturgical symbolism of the Old Testament of old Israel to interpret the ministry of Jesus. Now, let me comment upon this straight away. In old Israel, as in Israel to this day, the central act of worship and prayer took place on what was called, or still called, the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. That was the day in the year that gathered up the worship of every other day. 
And on that day an offering was made to God, which gathered up all the other offerings made to God in the sanctuaries of Israel. And on that day, the worship and prayers of all Israel were led by one man, the high priest. Now consider for a moment the symbolism of that day. Five things, very briefly. First, the high priest stood before the people as their divinely appointed representative, bone of their bone, flesh of their flesh, the one on behalf of the many, the leader of their worship and prayer, the liturgos ton hagion, the epistle of the Hebrew says, the one true leader of the liturgy, the minister of the sanctuary. He acted in their name and on their behalf. And that was symbolized by the fact that he had the names of all Israel, the tribe tribes of Israel, on his breastplate, and inscribed an onyx stones on his shoulder, the one on behalf of the many. <clears throat> Secondly, he consecrated himself for this ministry by certain liturgical acts. His whole body was washed with clear water. Sacrifice was made for his sins, and the blood was sprinkled upon his right ear, his right thumb, and his right toe, symbolizing total self-consecration to lead the people in their worship. Thirdly, he takes an animal, he lays his hands on the head of the victim, <clears throat> and vicariously confesses the sins of all Israel, an act of vicarious confession. O God, we have sinned and transgressed your covenant. Fourthly, the victim was then immolated as a symbol of the just judgments of God, and a scapegoat was sent away into the wilderness, symbolizing the removal of guilt from Israel. And then he takes the blood in a vessel and he ascends. It's very interesting that in the Greek of the Septuagint it uses the word ascends. He ascends into the Holy of Holies. He passes through the veil uh, into the presence of Yahweh. And there he sprinkles the blood on the propitiatory, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And there he intercedes with God. There in the Holy of Holies and Israel outside, he's praying that God will be gracious and accept them uh, and forgive them. Now you can visualize the scene. There's the high priest within the Holy of Holies and all Israel outside. A great volume of prayer going up to God. And one led by the high priest. But notice, may I make this point in passing, when he sprinkled the blood on the priest, this was not an act of placating an angry God. That would be pagan sacrifice. No, worship in old Israel was an ordinance of grace. God had provided this as an ordinance of grace to bear witness to the fact that he is propitious, he is gracious. He doesn't need to be propitiated. And the, and the Hebrew word kaper is never used of man as a subject trying to cover the face of God. That would be paganism. But God had provided this as a symbol, a sign that he would be gracious and propitious and, and, and wipe out their sins. And so there the high priest in intercession calls upon God to remember his promises and, and forgive his people. He's a covenant God, as I put it the other day, not a contract God. Fifthly, there's the return of the high priest to the waiting people to bless them. Numbers chapter 6 at verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And he blesses them in the name of the Lord. So you see, the high priest represents the people to God. 
and he represents the people to God to the people. A double movement representing Israel to God and God uh, to Israel. Now the New Testament writers see in this a foreshadowing of the mediatorial ministry of, of Christ. Again, five things, very briefly. First, Christ comes from the Father to be the true priest, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, standing in solidarity with all races, bearing upon his heart the needs, the sorrows, the injustices of all humanity. And he offers to the Father that worship and obedience, that life of intimate communion in the Spirit, that life of prayer, which we cannot offer. He acts in our name, on our behalf, the one on behalf of the many. Secondly, he consecrates himself for this ministry as leading us into the presence of God. John 17, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified, made holy. And then thirdly, he offers, not an animal, not a lamb, not a bullock, but he offers himself to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He's in our name, he says, Amen, to the divine judgments on our, on our sins. Again, I say, not appeasing an angry God in order that the Father might be gracious, no, but acknowledging in his holy life the holy love of the Father, saying, Amen, to the Father's wonderful purposes of redemption. God is the triune God of grace, the covenant God, revealing that in the new covenant on the cross, not a contract God, uh, as I've put it. And fourthly, on Easter Day, he rises, he says to Mary, touch me not, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending, returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Is it where the high priest is on his way into the Holy of Holies to intercede? And you remember the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing God tearing it apart, that there might be a way into the holiest uh, of all. And then fifthly, the same day at evening, where the eleven were gathered together in an upper room praying, Jesus comes into their midst, John 20, and he says, Peace be unto you. Uh, and, and, and he shows them his hands and his side. And again he says, Peace be unto you. It's the return of the high priest with a blessing of peace and with a gift uh, of the Holy Spirit that they might share with him his apostolic mission to the world, and he breathes on the Holy Spirit, says, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. And he sends them away in the power of the, of the Spirit to be a royal priesthood, acting in his name on his behalf with the ministry of forgiveness. So the New Testament writers saw Christ fulfilling what was foreshadowed in the high priestly ministry in the old, in old Israel. But then go back for a moment again to the Old Testament, and we can make two statements uh, uh, about those events. First, when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of Yahweh to intercede, it symbolized that all Israel entered into that holy place in his person. 
the one on behalf of the many. John Calvin has a lovely exposition of this in his commentary on Hebrews. All Israel entered there in his person as he had their names on his breastplate. Conversely, secondly, we can say that when he confessed their sins and interceded for them, God accepted all Israel in the person of their priest, the one on behalf of the many. That God's covenant blessings with Israel were established at the hands of a mediator. Mo Winkle makes the point that he does the same with the, the kingship. The, the priest represented Israel to God and God to Israel. Now, in analogous fashion, we can make a twofold statement about Jesus Christ. First, the one on behalf of the many, when Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of Mary, baptized by the Spirit in Jordan, suffered and died on the cross, rose again and ascended. It means that our humanity was born again in the womb of Mary, baptized by the Spirit in him, suffered, died, and rose again, and ascended in him. He took our humanity from Mary, sanctified it, and his whole life did this in our name. For we thus judge that if one died for all, then all died. The one on behalf of the many. When that man died, we died. When he rose, our humanity was raised in him and taken into the Holy of Holies in him. But conversely, secondly, because Jesus Christ has done all this for us, God accepts us in him as holy and without blame in him. Sancti et immaculati, as Paul puts it in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Christ is the mediator representing God to humanity and humanity to God, the one in behalf of the many. So that what was lost in the one man Adam is restored in the eschatos Adam, the one man Jesus Christ. And you see, this is the significance of why when we pray in the name of Christ, because of what he has done and is doing for us in our name, we can now come and worship in his name, knowing that we are accepted in the beloved. In prayer, we offer ourselves to the Father in the name of Christ, because he has already in our name, in our humanity, made the one true offering to the Father, the offering by which he sanctified for all time those who come to God by him, Hebrews 10.10. We are holy and immaculate in Christ. Christ is our sanctification. Now, this is, the, this is the substance of the teaching of Jesus in the upper room, which I referred to yesterday, on the eve of the cross. When, you remember, Jesus says, in that day, in the future, when the Spirit comes, if you will ask anything in my name, I will do it. Or again, the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Or in that day, in the future, when the Spirit comes, then you will ask in my name. And as I mentioned six times, that little phrase, in my name, in my name, comes in John 14 uh, to, to 16. And likewise, six, six times comes the phrase, whatever you ask, anything you ask, I will do it, or, or the Father will do it. He's going to make the only sacrifice which will wipe out sin and lead us into the Holy of Holies to intercede for the world in the presence of the Father. Now, you see, this is the good news of the gospel. In our name, on our behalf, in a human body, Jesus lived a life of prayer, a life in the Spirit, 
in communion with the Father. He carried our old humanity in himself to the grave. And our old humanity, that our old humanity might be renewed in him. And he rises from the dead. He ascends now as our great high priest to live for us in our humanity, in a glorified humanity, in a life of communion with the Father, to intercede for us within the, ho- within the Holy of Holies, in the heavenly places, as Paul puts it. But he doesn't do that alone. He pours out his Spirit upon the church at Pentecost and in all ages, that he might take us with him into the Holy of Holies, that he might lift us up into his life of prayer, that he might take us into these heavenly places in a life and communion with the Father, that we might, and I stress this word, participate in his life of prayer and intercession and his mission to the world. I mentioned the word koinonia, koinonia means fellowship, communion, sharing, participating, a very wonderful word. We are given the gift by the Spirit of sharing, participating in his communion with the Father, in his prayers, in his intercession, and in his mission from the Father uh, to the world. Now, it seems to me this is the heart of the message of the New Testament, the secret of our prayer life. Our great high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, having made sacrifice for our sins. He now intercedes for us within the veil. But as I say, he doesn't leave us outside. As I say, you can visualize in old Israel, all Israel were outside the sanctuary praying, and only the high priest was in the sanctuary. But when Christ goes into the Holy of Holies, he doesn't leave us outside. He comes to us by the Spirit that he might take us with him, take us with him as his brothers and sisters, right into the presence of his Father, and present us in himself to the Father, and unite us with himself in in his prayer life. The sole priesthood of Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Now, here we see, therefore, the nature of the church. As a royal priesthood, in the language of the New Testament, participating by grace, by the Holy Spirit, in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. This is the Trinitarian basis of the church. The church, we together, are a royal priesthood, the body of Christ, that share in his communion with the Father. Now, this is the Trinitarian, as I say, nature of prayer, and of the church as the body of Christ. The church, as it was baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I mentioned yesterday that vivid picture we're given of the ten days between the ascension of our Lord into the Holy of Holies um, and the day of Pentecost, with 120 disciples with Mary, the mother of our Lord, uh, were met together with one accord in one place in supplication and in prayer for the Holy Spirit, praying for the Spirit to come that Christ had promised. And then the Spirit comes. And then I mentioned to you that very significant word in Peter's speech in Acts 2, verse 33. This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised, being exalted to the right hand of the Father, into the Holy of Holies, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, which he's poured out upon you and which you see today. You see how he's interpreting Pentecost? The high priest who's sanctified our humanity, been filled with the Holy Spirit, now pours it out upon us that he might take us with him into his prayer life and into his mission and into his mission to the world. You see, it is though the church 
has as her foundation four great cornerstones. Firstly, the divinity of Christ, Son of God. <clears throat> Mary is Theotokos, the mother of God, as the ancient church put it. The Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary, the divinity of Christ. Secondly, the incarnation, the real humanity of Christ. Mary bears a human child, and God assumes our humanity in the womb of Mary. Thirdly, the atonement on the cross. Christ carries our old humanity in himself to the grave, and he offers through the eternal spirit his life to the Father in death. We thus judge that if one died for all, then all died. The atonement, he bore our sins in his own body. Fourthly, the fourth foundation, the resurrection and the ascension to the throne. You know, the church doesn't stress enough the ascension as I see it. The ascension, where he carries our humanity sanctified in himself right into the holy of holies, to reign as our royal priest. It's as though you see the ascension is the glorious fruit of all that goes before. And the Holy Spirit was sent down after the ascension. You know, it's as if the whole purpose of the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is in order that we might receive the Holy Spirit, that we might be brought into communion and union with God, that the triune God of grace might bring to fulfillment his purposes in creating us in his image, that we might be brought into a life of holy communion, a life of prayer, that Jesus comes, lives, dies, rises, ascends in order that now he might take us by the Holy Spirit into the very life of God. Hebrews 10, 21, Since therefore we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw nigh to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Or again, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Christ, the apostle and high priest of our profession. Therefore, we can say three things about prayer life. And this is what I, I, I was talking about yesterday. First and foremost, Jesus Christ intercedes for us. He stands in for us as the ascended Lord, our high priest. That's the foundation of our prayer life. He, he's taken our humanity into the very triune life of God. Secondly, as we've just seen it, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can cry, Abba, Father, so that we can be his brothers and sisters as he takes us by the Spirit into the Holy of Holies. And thirdly, he unites us with himself in prayer <clears throat> that we might participate in communion with him. He brings us into what I call a prayer union. He prays, we pray, he intercedes, we intercedes. He cries, Abba, Father. We, through the Spirit, cry, Abba, Father. As we abide in Christ, as we abide in the vine and bear the fruits. Now, it seems to me that to have a proper understanding of the church, as a royal priesthood. Therefore, we need to stress two things supremely. Now, the first I've been stressing is the Trinitarian nature of prayer. The great Christian doctrine of the Trinity, as I put it, is the grammar or of our understanding of worship and of prayer. That we pray to the Father 
through the Son, uh, in the Spirit. The prayer is participating by the Holy Spirit in the Son's communion with the Father. Now here let me suggest another diagram, if I may, on praying to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. That Jesus is interceding for us in his continuing in his continuing in his continuing priesthood. He always lives to intercede for those who come to God through him. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. So you see, can I put it this way, that right at the heart of the New Testament stands, not you or me, not my experience or your experience, but there stands a unique relationship between Jesus and the Father. That is the center uh, of the whole the whole of, 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 the New, of the New Testament. And you have a quotation here from George MacDonald. You know the name of George MacDonald, the Scottish novelist, where he said, the secret of the whole story of humanity is the love between the Father and the Son. That is the root of it all. Upon the love between the Son and the Father hangs the whole universe. I love that quotation. That right at the center of the New Testament, we're given this wonderful picture of Jesus and the Father living this life in our humanity. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the son, Father, the Father bears witness to the Son, the Son bears witness to the Father. We're given a glimpse into the prayer life, the prayer life of Jesus. Jesus says to the Father, I thank you that you always hear my prayers, you always hear me. And the Father says, you are my Son, Ask of me and I will answer. That the center of the new whole new is a prayer life between Jesus and the Father. That the Father hears the prayers of the Son and the Son takes our prayers and prays to the Father. That's the, and now he's going to draw us, draw us uh, into that. So prayer is participating by the Holy Spirit in the Son's communion with the Father and the Son's mission from the Father to the world is the gift of sharing in his mission as the apostle and high priest. Now, but Jesus comes and he lives that life. Why? <clears throat> in order that we might be a royal priesthood, that he might take us with him into that life of communion and prayer with the Father, that he might present us in himself to the Father, that we might be accepted by the Father in himself. And the bond between Jesus and the Father is the Holy Spirit living in loving communion, and that spirit is poured out upon us that we might abide in Christ and be brought into loving communion. Now that's just a diagram, but may I submit to you that that is a way of trying to point to what is at the heart of the New Testament. So when you begin to talk about prayer, don't begin talking about your own prayer life. Talk about Jesus' life of prayer and intercession and communion with the Father. And then know that he lived that life in order that he might pour out the spirit upon us and take us with him in, into, into the Holy of Holies. Now, be far beyond my scope here, but one could say a great deal about that model. Nearly all sorts of doctrines could follow from that. that for example, worship. That Jesus is the one true worshiper, the Liturgos ton hagion, and our worship is the gift of sharing and participating in that man's self-offering to the Father. And there's the doctrine of the church. The church is already one and complete in Christ the head, Book two of Calvin's issues, all parts of our salvation are complete in Christ. Everything is completed in Christ. 
Then book three of the Institutes, we are now united with Christ by the Spirit to share in Christ and to feed upon Christ. We, we are the body of Christ, members of his body. One holy Catholic and apostolic, there's only one head, one holy head of Christ. Christ is the head and we are the members. You, you, we, could, we could talk about communion in those terms. At the Lord's table, Christ comes to meet us as we take bread and wine to bring his passion to our remembrance that he might lift us up into wonderful communion with the Father. Or baptism, or knowledge. Nobody knows the Son save the Father, and nobody knows the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, one could take doctrine after doctrine, the church, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, worship, knowledge of God, and it all unfolds from that, from that center. But at the moment, I'm simply focusing on that, on prayer, the Trinitarian nature of prayer. So you see, the doctrine is not our reading something into the New Testament that isn't there. It's our articulating what is at the heart of the New Testament the economic trinity. Secondly, this means the church lives by grace alone. We pray by grace alone. As Paul says, we do, we do not know how to pray as we are, Romans eight twenty six. But God has come to us in Christ to stand in for us, to pray for us and with us and in us, sending the spirit of his son into our hearts, whereby now we can cry up a father. Now here is the significance of what theologians call the vicarious humanity of Christ. The vicarious humanity of Christ, so fundamental to the New Testament. The triune God coming to us in Jesus Christ to stand in for us, to do for us and in us by the Holy Spirit what we cannot do by ourselves to bring his purposes to fulfillment in our humanity. For example, think of Romans, the epistle of the Romans, when Paul expounds justification by faith alone. His thesis is we're all under law, all under the dikaiometer, the righteous requirements of the law. We try to fulfill the law, but we fail to. And we come under the condemnation of the law, the catechremeter, the condemnation of the law. And we're all guilty before God under the law, but we can't fulfill it. Does God then abandon his righteous purposes for us? No, he sends his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law, in order that we might receive the adoption of sons. That the righteous requirements of the law, the decayment of the law, might be fulfilled for us by Christ, in our humanity, and fulfilled in us by the Spirit, as we walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, Romans 8, verse 3. Um, he's born of Mary to be our brother, that he might stand in for us and fulfill all righteousness for us, that we might be accepted in the beloved by faith. That's the great Reformation teaching of justification by faith alone. But what Paul says about righteousness, uh, especially in the first part of Romans, he then goes on to say the same about prayer. The triune God has created us for a life of worship and prayer under the dikaiometer tesla trias, the epistle of the Hebrews puts it, under the ordinances of worship. But try as we might to fulfill the ordinances of prayer, 
fulfill the dikaiomata, the righteous requirements of prayer, we fail. And so Paul goes on then to say in Romans 8, verse 26, let's be honest, we do not, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Who then is he who condemns? When we feel under condemnation because of our failure in our prayer life, who then is he that condemns? It is Christ who died, yea, rather, who's risen at the right hand of God, whoever lives to intercede for us. Therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God. You see, Paul expounds prayer in terms of by grace alone, God coming as man to stand in for us. When we want to pray, try to pray and can't, that man prays for us and with us. In the power of the Spirit, interpreting our desires so that nothing can separate from the love of God. And I mentioned yesterday, one of the great debates in the early church was between Arius and Athanasius, when Arius said, Jesus isn't God. Look at the New Testament. He's a man who prays, prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, prays at the Last Supper, prays. He's not a God. He's a man praying to God. And Athanasius, Arius, you don't know the meaning of grace. God knows we ought to pray, want to pray, try it, but can't. But God comes as man to stand in for us and pray for us and with us and in us, the priesthood of Christ of grace. Athanasius and the Nicene Fathers grasp that. Well, again, what, what you say about righteousness or prayer applies to all sorts of other doctrines. The priesthood, for example, of Christ, that Christ comes to stand. Israel was called to be a royal priesthood. We are meant to be the priests of creation. But we fail. Israel failed to be the royal priesthood. Does God then abandon his, ho his purposes? No, God comes as man and Christ to be the one true priest and to call us together by grace to, that we might be a royal priesthood sharing in his priesthood. And again, what we've said about righteousness and prayer, the Bible says about holiness. The command of God is, be ye holy for I am holy. That's God's righteous requirement. The be holy, for I am holy. But you and I can't make ourselves holy. None of us can sanctify or make ourselves holy. But again, God comes to stand in for us in Jesus Christ, that he might take our humanity and sanctify it, make it holy, and take it into the holy of holies, that he might now pour out the Holy Spirit upon us, that we might live holy lives in and through him. Holiness must be understood in terms of <clears throat> the vicarious humanity uh, uh, of, of Christ. And that's why, as I say, Ephesians 1, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in him. Sancti et immaculati giving us the Holy Spirit, calling us to be holy in ourselves. If I can digress for a moment, you know, the Roman Catholic Church teaches the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that Mary was immaculate, sancti et immaculati. Now, that was first put taught by the man I mentioned yesterday, John Duns Scotus. <coughs> but what John Duns Scotus was saying was that when God elected Mary, she was a fallen woman. Of the fall, she wasn't a pre-fall Eve. God elected a fallen woman, Mary, from the tribe of Israel, daughter Zion. But he elected her and sanctified her womb. That Mary was cleansed by the blood of her son. 
that the blood of Christ works retrospectively as prospectively. She was sanctified by the blood of her son. Her womb was sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then John Dunn Scotus quoted that verse from Ephesians chapter 1, that we are chosen and elected in Christ to be sancti et immaculati, that God chose Mary to be holy and immaculate in Christ. Quite right. And for five or six hundred years, it was fiercely debated down the centuries between Franciscans and Dominicans until in the 1850s. The Roman dogma was produced about the immaculate conception of Mary. Now, you see, how were they interpreting it? The danger was they were saying that Mary had, by a special fiat decree of God to be made holy and immaculate, in order that she could be worthy to be elected to be the mother of our Lord. That wasn't what Duns Scotus was saying. No, like us, she's a symbol of the church, that we are, you and I are chosen to be holy and immaculate in Christ. And in that way, Mary was immaculate in Christ. Well, that's a little digression, but certain texts like that have been very important. What is our doctrine of the holiness? The vicarious humanity of Christ means that God has come to take our humanity and make us holy uh, in him. As I say now, you can say this about doctrine after doctrine in that way, beyond our, our scope here. Now, in, in the light of all this, I've talked about the sole priesthood of Christ, the church called to be a royal priesthood, holy and immaculate in Christ. Now, in the light of all this, let me say now something more specifically about our prayer life, gathering together some of the things I've said. First and foremost, therefore, we pray by grace alone. Again, Romans 8, we, we don't know how to pray as we ought. We want to pray, we try to pray, we don't know how to pray, we fail to pray. But God comes as man to pray for us and with us and in us that he might take our prayers, cleanse them, make them his prayers and present them to the Father and conversely make his prayer our prayer. We pray to God by grace alone. Prayer is God's gift of grace. He so longs to, for us to come into communion. He created us for communion. He doesn't allow sin to prevent it. He comes graciously to lead us in our prayers. And a little comment about this word grace, a word that's often bandied around in the history of the church, that grace is not a thing dispensed, as it, as it were, by the church or whatever. When Paul used the word charis, he took a Greek word, which in its classical Greek meaning meant aesthetic beauty or something of the kind, an aesthetic quality, but to give it a totally different meaning, really translating the Hebrew word chesed, covenant love. Therefore, grace means that God comes to us in love, in covenant love, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to draw us into covenant union with him. That grace is always personal, not impersonal. You see, in the history of the church, we've used a lot of vocabulary. We've talked about created grace, infused grace, imputed grace, imparted grace, sacramental grace, visible signs of an invisible grace. Astonishing. Now, we know what many of those phrases mean, but the danger is that we think of sacraments as visible signs of an invisible grace, whatever that may mean. No baptism in the Lord's Supper set forth as visible signs who Christ is and what Christ has done and what Christ is doing for us as he draws us into his communion and, and pardon our sins. Grace is personal. 
is the activity of the triune God personally coming to us in Christ, personally coming to us by the Spirit. And, as I stressed on Tuesday, God's grace is unconditionally free. He's a covenant God, not a contract God. And therefore, we must, never, we must avoid any attitude of prayer where we think, well, it's our duty to pray, and only if we pray will God be gracious to us. What kind of a human father would he be who said to his children, now, I'll only love you if? Hmm? What, what kind of father would say to his kids, I'll only love you if? That man wouldn't love his kids. And yet the sad thing is that down the centuries, we've wedded that concept of the contract God to God as father. And no wonder many feminists don't like it if the word father implies a contract God. Now, that's false. No, God is our Father who's opened himself to us in wonderful love, in grace, that he might lift us up into his bosom, into his love life. Therefore, we pray in... Secondly, therefore, prayer is the gift of grace. Secondly, therefore, we pray in faith, looking away to God our Father, to Christ our High Priest, to intercede for us. Now, to, to, to illustrate this, let me refer you to a very lovely prayer by a French writer, Charles de Foucault, sometimes called the Prayer of Abandonment. The prayer that implies absolute surrender to God. Andrew Murray, whom I mentioned, wrote a very book, beautiful book called Absolute Surrender. But look, look at this wonderful prayer. Father, and think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, for example. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you will do, I will thank you. Let only your will be done in me as in all your creatures. And I'll ask nothing else, my Lord. Into your hands I commend my spirit. I give it to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands with a trust beyond all measure because you are my Father. Now, that's a beautiful prayer, I think. There's Jesus saying, Father, your will be done. And he surrenders himself. He abandons himself into the Father's hands and is willing to go all the way to the cross. And that's the way you and I are called in faith, that when we look away to Christ, crucified, ascended, risen, he calls us to surrender, to abandon ourselves to him, to let him therefore take us by the Spirit into the Holy of Holies. As we pray, thy will be done. Thirdly, therefore, following from that, therefore we pray in the Spirit. Romans eight twenty six again, we don't know how to pray as we are, but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Or again, we think again of, of Acts chapter 1, verse 14 that I mentioned, when the 120 were met with one accord, in supplication and prayer, praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit, a picture of the church, looking away to the ascended Lord. Mary, our Lord's mother, was there, praying, looking to the ascended Lord, to fulfill his promise when he says, I will come again, that I might take you that where I am, there you may be also. <clears throat> now, this notion of abandoning ourselves to him, surrendering ourselves to him, praying that he might come by the Spirit to lift us up into him. It was one of the points I've said to you was mentioned, emphasized by the dear man I mentioned, Andrew Murray, the Aberdeenshire Scot who was 
six times moderate in the Dutch Reform South, South, South Africa. Now let me repeat what I said, because this was very important for him, that he was aware, as I said to you, of the great evangelical awakenings, the revivals of the 19th century, 1859, 60, in America here, in the UK, in South Africa, and then the, the Moody Awakenings. And he noticed, as I said to you, that so often people are converted at a mission like that. They're born again. They, come, they look into the face of Christ upon the cross and, and they find forgiveness and the joy of salvation and they're born again of the Spirit. The glory of the fruit of these great evangelical awakenings and revivals. But then Andrew Murray noticed that so often people who've had that conversion experience of being born again of the Spirit then begin to say, often with high words, now I've got to pray. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to witness. I've got to worship. I've got to go to church. And so now, prayer becomes something that I do. And with my strength, and I want God to help me to pray to God. And he says the whole thing then becomes a burden. And he knows this was a major cause of prayerlessness. He discusses this in one of his little books called The, the Prayer Life. And his thought is this, ah, you've come through one stage of the cross, but move on. Don't stop at the cross. Keep looking away by faith. To Christ the Ascended Lord, our great High Priest, in your prayer life, and as you look away to him and abandon yourself to him and yield yourself to him and surrender yourself to him, he'll come by the Spirit, in the fullness of the Spirit, and lift you up to share his life of worship and prayer and mission and service. That we live from beginning to end by faith alone, not only faith at the cross, where Jesus died to take away our past sins, but we still look to him by faith, that by the Spirit he might lead us onward. And he often comments, he's got a wonderful commentary in the Epistle of the Hebrews, the holiest of all, where he expounds this very fully. And he refers to those, that verse that comes two or three times in the book of Deuteronomy, that God brought them out in order that he might bring them in. That God brought Israel out of Egypt. He redeemed them out of the house of bondage, and they came marching through the Red Sea, a redeemed people into the wilderness. But then they wandered in the wilderness. They made a golden calf. They turned away from God. And they perished in the wilderness. But God had brought them out in order that he might bring them in by faith into the promised land. Now that's the theme that's taken up by the writer of the Epistle of the Hebrews, where he uses that simile about the, the, the church to whom the letter is written. Yes, what's happened to you? You're for, you're, you once looked to Christ, your great high priest, and you came out of the house of bondage. But now you've taken your eyes off Christ and you've gone back to the old sacrifices and the old ways. Don't take your eyes off Christ looking to Jesus, the author and the pioneer of our faith. Let him lead you, let him lead you on into the promised land. That's the message of the epistle of the Hebrews. And that's the message that we need to hear. That we live by faith from beginning to end. And as we look to him, then the Holy Spirit leads us on. In prayer, we pray by grace, we pray by faith, we pray in the Spirit. Fourthly, what I've already been saying in prayer, we are led into the holy presence of God, lifting up holy hands uh, to the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Christ, let us draw near. Or you remember Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that when you pray, go into your room, 
Go into your inner chamber. Go into that inner sanctuary and shut the door and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. See, the Holy of Holies can be in your own heart, in your own home, where Christ can come and meet you. And the Father can hear your prayers and lift you up into a life of most wonderful communion. And that again, I come back to Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ and chosen us in him to be holy and without blame. Therefore, we offer holy hands to the Lord. And Jesus prayed, Holy Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Jesus came to take our humanity to make it holy. And he prays the Father that we may be made holy and that we may be brought into the holiest of all. Well, I leave you with these thoughts. We pray by grace alone. We pray by faith. We pray in the Spirit, lifting up holy hands. Now, very briefly, let's all summarize, as I see it in that diagram, that we are given the gift as a royal priesthood of sharing in the prayers and the communion of Christ with the Father. He takes us and lifts us up so that we live by grace, we live by faith, we abandon ourselves to him, <clears throat> and he leads us into the holy of holies. That he, that, so that he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name in the holy place. Now, contemplate that diagram, because let me suggest this to you, that if that doesn't somehow suggest your theology, if the Father and the Son are not the center of your understanding of the text, then what is the result? Then in practice, in practice, our prayer and worship can become Unitarian, that we pray to God. Now, I mentioned to you, I, I think I mentioned to you that how Bishop Leslie Newbegin, one of the great missionary statesmen of our time, after 39 years in India, came back home to the UK and here to America and made the blunt statement that the religion of the average person in our Western churches is in practice, not in theory, but in practice Unitarian. We've lost the great doctrine of the Trinity. And the British Council of Churches took that so seriously that they appointed a commission on the doctrine of the Trinity. So you see, if that isn't the center, the danger can be then the center's me. That you and I, this is the attitude of so many of my fellow church people in Scotland, good religious people, what is, what is worship for them? Well, we go to church on a Sunday, we sit in the pew, we listen to the sermon, we offer our time and our talents to God, we intercede for Kosovo or the Middle East, we need God's grace to help us to do it. And we do it because Jesus told us to do it. But worship is just what we do. In practice, it's Unitarian. In practice, it's a burden. It's something that we have to try to do in our own strength. We've lost the Trinity. We've lost grace. And it can become legalistic. Stout-hearted people can pull themselves out of bed on a Sunday morning, go to church to do their religious thing. And at the end, they, they heave a sigh and say, that's over for another week. Maybe not here in America, but I'm sure that can be true at home. And behind it then comes the contract God. Well, I'll just leave those, leave those thoughts with you. Let that be the center of your spirituality, your prayer life, your worship, your communion, your understanding of the Lord's Supper, your understanding of baptism, your understanding of, of, of sanctification. I end with this thought, that a very remarkable Jesuit, liturgical scholar called J.A. Jungmann, wrote a very important book called The Place of Christ in Liturgical Prayer. 
a Jesuit liturgical scholar, the place of Christ in the liturgical prayer. And Jungmann points out that in the New Testament, in the early liturgy, and in the early liturgy of the church of the first three centuries, Christ <coughs> was given a twofold place in Christian worship. On the one hand, prayer was offered to Christ as God. We pray to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. We pray to Christ as God, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. <coughs> but on the other hand, the New Testament and the early liturgy saw that Christ is the great high priest, our brother man who prays for us and with us to the Father, who presents us in our prayers to the Father. And that was clear, that double emphasis upon Christ in the first three centuries. But then in the time of Nicaea, Jungmann points out, the point that I made to you, that the Arians attacked this notion that Jesus isn't God, he's simply a man praying to God. You don't pray to a man. Uh, and But Athanasius, as I said, replies to Arius, you don't know the meaning of grace, that God has come as man to stand in for us and pray for us as our high priest. Now, Jungmann argues that after Nicaea, fear of Arianism, fear of that argument, led the church to play down the role of the vicarious humanity and priesthood of Christ. They so wanted to assert that Christ is very God, a very God, begotten, not made. They assert the deity of Christ. That they began to play down the role of the priesthood of Christ after Nicaea. But what was the result? Um, says Jungmann the Jesuit. Then the tendency was for the church to substitute the priesthood and the sacrifice and the merits and the intercessions of the church of Mary and of the saints. And so suddenly, because they've played down the role of the sole priesthood of Christ, then talking about the intercessions and the prayers of Mary and of the saints. And they now you can understand the Reformation. Now you can understand John Calvin and his great commentary on Hebrews and else, calling the church back to the sole priesthood of Christ. And the church is a royal priesthood by grace, only by sharing in the sole priesthood of Christ. A central message in, in Calvin. But then may I go on to make this comment. That Calvin expounded the work of Christ in terms of the threefold office of Christ, the triplex munis, as prophet, priest, and king. Or king, priest, and prophet is the order he, he used. But he didn't only expound the once and for all ministry of Christ as prophet, he expounded the continuing ministry of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. That's, but the sad thing is that in later scholastic Calvinism and in the Puritan tradition and in, in our Protestant tradition, what have we done? We've stressed the prophetic office of Christ in preaching. In a land like Scotland, a great emphasis upon the preaching of the word, strong in our Protestant tradition, Baptist, Presbyterian, we preach the word, the prophetic office of Christ. And we've stressed the kingship of Christ, the crown rights of the Redeemer was a battle cry of John Knox and the Covenanters in Scotland have stressed Jesus is Lord. There's only one King and Lord in the Church, Jesus Christ. But what about the continuing priesthood of Christ? I submit to you, it very often disappears. We've not, sometimes out of fear of wrong Roman views or certain 
Anglo-Catholic views, because the Anglo-Catholic tradition, as you know, in the Church of England, wanted to stress the, the priesthood of Christ. But let me, for example, in the Westminster documents, some of you are familiar with, in the Presbyterian form of church government, it begins by saying there's only one king and head of this church, Jesus Christ, quite rightly so. But when it comes to the Presbyterian directory for public worship, you would expect to begin by saying there's only one true priest in this church, and we are a royal priesthood sharing in his worship. It never mentions it. It never mentions it. It was the purest concern about free prayer, that we pray with free prayer, and we don't need fixed liturgies or rituals or something. And you suddenly become aware that this great doctrine of the continuing priesthood of Christ has largely disappeared from a great deal of our Protestantism. And through the centuries, uh, you can see that. And, and now, can I just make a quick concluding comment there? Why, in my lectures here, I've said we must recover this. Christ is prophet, priest, uh, and king. Because you see, there's only one priest, Jesus Christ. But he is a twofold priesthood. He's a once and for all priesthood, where he bore our sins once and for all upon the cross, Ephapax. But is a continuing, he's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, whoever lives to intercede for us. Don't stress the one at the expense of the other. You see, Protestantism has tended, evangelical Protestantism, stress that Christ died upon the cross to take away our past sins. Quite right. But that's only the retrospective aspect. But we have a great high priest who ever lives to take us with him in our prayer life into the Holy of Holies. So we have to distinguish a twofold priesthood of Christ and not confuse them. The once and for all and the continuing. But likewise, we have to distinguish the once and for all atoning sacrifice, never to be repeated. Christ is the propitiation for our sins, is wiped them out once and for all. But Christ ever lives as our burnt offering, our thank offering, that he takes our prayers and he presents our praises to the Father. And sometimes Protestantism, out of fear of wrong Roman notions of a continuing propitiatory mass or something of the kind, have played down the continuing priesthood of Christ. Well, I leave you therefore with these thoughts, that we need to recover the wonderful doctrine of God as the triune God of love, and of God in grace coming to stand in for us, the sole priesthood of Christ, that as we offer our prayers to him, feeble, frail, unworthy prayers, he takes our prayers, he sanctifies them, he makes them his prayers, he presents them to the Father, and he receives from the Father the blessing. You'll notice in that diagram, I've got certain arrows, that we pray to Christ. Jesus prays to the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes down upon Christ and upon us. There's a kind of movement that Jesus prays to the Father and he receives the Holy Spirit from the Father that he might pour it upon us. And we come in our prayers and offer our prayers to Christ. He takes them, he presents them to the Father, he receives from the Father's Spirit which he pours out and it becomes a kind of circle. Pray, receive the Spirit, and we pray in the Spirit. The triune God created us in his own image to live that life and has redeemed us in order that together we can live that life. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. 
You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.